Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, Connor, this show is about clash without fatigue. Ooh. It's about two opposite poles of American thought without the debilitating polarization. It's about the generation gap. A boomer dad, that's me, and a millennial son, that's you. The gap being closed by equal parts respect, humor, critical thinking, and love. This is perfect. We're sitting across a very, very large desk right now, so I can metaphorically reach my hand across the desk, and it hurts. It's a stretch, but but we can reach. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of what I was going perfect. for. Anyway, so that's what the show is all about. Uh, we're talking about what's big in the news, uh, well, this week, but also a 75th anniversary. We'll get to that. And uh, we have different perspectives, but let's just see how they get folded together. So we're here to answer a few questions, Akon. Number one, should Biden say no? Just just say no, like Nancy just Reagan. say no. To the debates. Mm-hmm. A lot of Democrats are saying, yeah, that would be the way to go. Number two, uh, should the National Rifle Association be, be dissolved, just like a cube of butter in a cup of coffee? Evocative. Butter so, and coffee. God. Uh, did I say butter? I meant sugar. Well, yeah. people do butter and coffee. It's yeah. a thing. Hipsters. Yeah, it's buttery. That's Hipsters. right, I guess. Uh. Anyway, a New York attorney general would like to dissolve the NRA. Question number three is a heavy-duty one. This today, August 9. 2020 is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki. Of course, the first bomb on Hiroshima was six. It was uh, three days earlier on August 6. By the way, today, August 9, is also a big political anniversary. Uh, I don't know if you're enough of a Nixon wonk, Connor. And m- few millennials are. This, yeah. this is the day he resigned. Wow. Well, Nixon's probably going to come up uh, in our fourth block topic about Trump and his executive uh, orders. Good point. On Tencent, WeChat, uh, and the other uh, the other stuff. It's about executive power. And Nixon was the guy who got rebuked um, in his, the end of his term um, for uh, for improper use of this exact same power. That's right. The TikTok controversy uh, should. Uh, Donald Trump be allowed to conduct a hostile takeover of TikTok. Yeah. That's uh, our topic number four in the D block -block. of of the show. So let's get to our first question on presidential debates. Should Biden say no way? So here's my take, Connor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden has an insurmountable lead. Let's face it. Nobody likes Trump. Melania doesn't like Trump. We learned this week his daughter Tiffany doesn't like him much either. I don't know. Maybe Barron's still on his side. We don't know. Did you hear about the controversy about uh, the aide to Trump? Trump that he fired this week? No. I've forgotten her name, but she's been a very close to Trump and family aide for, for years now, several years. And apparently she had a couple of drinks with some reporters recently. And although the Washington Post reporter said, oh, sweetie, this is so far off the OTR. Record. Yeah, this yeah, is off yeah. the record. Come on, spill. What's it really right, right, like right. there? And she says, well, I got to tell you. Uh, Donald Trump couldn't pick his daughter Tiffany out of the lineup along those lines. And he does not like to be photographed with her because she's heavy Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other really embarrassing inside uh, family stuff. And guess what? Dirty laundry. She's out of there. It's gone. Uh, She has been fired. So uh, that's uh, that's the problem with uh, with uh, Tiffany. But so here's the deal. Um, not only doesn't she like him, and Melania doesn't like him, nobody likes him. So let's face it, Trump's going to lose in November. COVID has killed him. 
uh, the debates can uh, can only only hurt Joe Biden. Okay. Yeah, I, All he has I, to do I, I is kinda... sail to victory and right. do nothing. Certainly, if the debates were to happen, they probably can only let the underdog claw back. Debates aren't really about letting uh, uh, the leader solidify their lead. They're about equalizing things and letting everybody have a chance in the spotlight uh, because the the leader generally gets more spotlight by virtue of being the leader. Now, the denial of the debates, which are such a such a consistent theme in presidential elections, this idea that there will be a debate and we'll get to see everybody on stage. People like that concept in the abstract. They want there to be debates. And so do they? Do to they really? Be, well, to be the person to shut down debates looks bad. Yeah. Whether, to, whether anybody actually wants to watch the debates is a different question. Whether people want the idea of the debates to go on so that they can see on their phones uh, the next morning, uh, Trump won the debate or Biden won the debate so right. they can cheer on their guy having won the debate, whatever the heck that means, they like that. So how bad will Biden look? How much of a wuss will he look like? Now, people don't like their heroes backing down. I don't think it's going to be a problem for him. First of all, let's put it in historical context. Back when I was a young boy and the Lincoln-Douglas debates went on, (laughs) and that was actually for Senate before Lincoln ran for president. I mean, that was the debate everybody heard about. And then we go decades and decades, and basically there's nothing, no no presidential debates. 1960, (laughs) Richard Nixon who'd been quite a, quite a successful debater That's in school, really good uh, decided he, sure, that pretty boy Jack Kennedy, I can go up against him and beat him. And in fact, surveys say, survey says, if you listen to the Nixon-Kennedy debate, the first big one uh, of three or four they did, uh, on radio, Nixon won. He edged him out. You look on TV and, oh my goodness, Kennedy just clobbered Smashed him. him yeah, yeah, Nixon did not look good. So we had the debates then. We didn't have any debates in 64 between Goldwater and Johnson, now did we? We didn't have any debates between Humphrey and Nixon in 68. No debates for, for several t- years. And then suddenly we've got Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter doing the debates in 76. And ever since, it's been a tradition. But the fact that we've had it for the last several rounds— 40 years, 10 elections. —would not prevent Joe Biden from saying this. Tell me what you think about this as a Don Draper uh, advertising uh, Ooh, approach. Good, good, good. He would say, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I want to talk to you about the debates. I want to share with you some uh, some clips, some little sound bites of uh, Donald Trump uh, in debating against his opponents over the, uh, the last uh, several debates. And you tell me if we need any more of this. And then he would play a sizzle reel of Donald Trump making personal insults, gesturing, you, you know, in inappropriate ways, yeah. hulking over Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Clinton in, the background, in yeah. the background like he's the Hulk. You don't want to see me when I'm uh, angry, angry yeah. or otherwise. And Biden would close by say, you know, if you folks really think you need to see more of that, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to participate in it. I'm going to let you know what my vision for America is. And I don't think it's necessary to share the stage with that guy. We all know who he is and where he's coming from. I now. think you're right. Why wouldn't that work? I, th- I think and you're right. And here's the problem. I think you're right. The, the potential for disaster is if there is anything to the suggestion that there are cognitive problems going on with Joe Biden, and I certainly don't know, I haven't examined him for weeks, but the fact is... If there is anything right, to right, the right. rumorizing, there could be a total colossal disaster yeah, moment. I mean, his whole career, he's a gaff machine. He yeah, but there's a difference between gaff machine and appearing to be suffering from dementia. You're, you're right. But the problem is, when he was Veep, right— he was never really in the spotlight. Right. It was always Obama speaking and doing his, you know, magnificent presidentialness that we look back on fondly and think, oh, my God, back when we had a president who knew how to give a speech, right? That he was in the foreground. And Biden was just sort of sm- chuckling and smiling in the background. 
Biden has always kind of had a stutter uh, and and had a halting method of speech and always had sort of a very, I mean, he's got a Southern accent. Yeah, but he's he, I think he's endearing. Good I think people book. like he, him. He is endearing. Come on, man. Yeah, you know, that's his that, shtick. That's why that casual attitude and the kind of a stutter, which actually is a positive in, in people's uh, many people's eyes, that does not translate well. That's why uh, the calls for him to be examined for having some sort of cognitive decline have caught on and been very powerful well, because that's another, his style. There's another reason. I think there's a reason that while Trump has done verbal battle on a weekly and sometimes daily basis with very smart, young, prepared haters, people who really don't like him, yeah. live on national TV, Biden hasn't even appeared on a single Sunday Sunday show since COVID began, right. and, and maybe we know why. We know that he his lead is solid, and why yeah. should he risk it? Right. He isn't even going to Milwaukee to the national convention. Right. To I mean, what possible excuse? All he has to do, they can wheel him in, stand him up in front of the teleprompter, he reads a good speech with the teleprompter, but they won't even let him do that. Uh, it's a very, very peculiar situation. It's kind of like mean, a, a golf you, match. You, if you're up four holes after 12 with just six to go, you you don't pull out your driver and yeah. rip it. You just, just baby the three. Just seven wheel. iron, yeah, down the middle. Just, <laughs> just who cares? It doesn't even matter. Yeah. Make your opponent reel off a bunch of birdies. Absolutely Hey, right. this is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And, and I'm uh, Connor Oaks. Connor can tell you better than I how you can uh, yeah. get in touch with the show. Please, please, if you like our show, uh, head to your Apple Podcasts app that you you use to get it or to Stitcher or to Spotify or wherever else you get podcast addict doesn't matter wherever you get your podcasts uh, leave us a review uh, leave us a uh, we, we got a couple of really um, uh, glowing reviews this uh, last week or so uh, we really appreciate those uh, and then of course I personally reached out and, and uh, paid those bribes uh, so you can you really count glowing, on that glowing reviews they actually threw hot coals at us do you really want to call that glowing reviews yeah they were, they were glowing things it was well done uh, but yeah, please check, uh, check us out on those apps and please rate us and, and, and leave a review. And if not a review, then just, you know, give us five stars because we deserve it. And we would really appreciate it. It, it really does help out a lot. Uh, our egos specifically, it, it makes no difference in our material lives, but, but we feel better when you rate us. We'll be right back with Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Noel Oaks. I'm still Connor Oaks. So before we get to uh, topic two, which is about whether we should dissolve the National Rifle Association, I, I wanted to add a little postscript to our debate discussion. There was an interesting uh, piece by Elizabeth Drew. She's a journalist uh, there in Washington, D.C., and she was in the Washington Post, I think. And she was saying, let's scrap the presidential debate. She said, this is not a test for leadership. It's basically quips. And she mentioned you know, Ronald Reagan saying, oh, Jimmy, there you go again. And uh, the, the famous one when Mondale was running against Reagan, and Reagan was really on the ropes, and he was looking like he had dementia. And so there's a question from a reporter, Mr. President, Mr. Reagan, what don't you, dementia? what about the age issue? And he said, well, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I, I will not exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Oh, it brought down the House. Good even quip. Mondale, great quip, even Mondale laughed, and Elizabeth drew the column and said, see, that kind of BS, non-substantive stuff, that's what debates are all about. And then she said, Quote, this, by the way, isn't written out of any concern that Donald Trump will prevail over Joe Biden in the debates. Mr. Biden has just done just fine in a long string of such contests. Well, I think that somebody should remind Elizabeth Drew that it's a sin to lie, okay? For her to say that she, as an obvious partisan for Biden, is not saying, don't debate, don't debate, for any reason other than her secret fear, oh my God, Biden will, will dissolve into a puddle of dementia. You know that 
that's what her concern is. Or do you think I'm being too hard on her? I think you're being a little too hard. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Oh, okay, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> uh, topic two. Uh, should the New York Attorney General try to shut down the National Rifle Association? So the background here, Connor, is that this uh, lady who's uh, the New York AG, who ran for that office two years ago saying the NRA is a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, reasonable minds can, can differ, but... But not on that issue. No. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so she responds. <laughs> she responds to the fact that the head of the NRA, this Wayne Lapierre, yes, uh, he, he should be dissolved just because of his name, I guess. But he's apparently using the NRA as his personal piggy bank, and we don't right. know if the allegations are true. But the allegations are, you know, private jets and personal hotels and casinos and so on. So the question is. Uh, why not go after him and his pals who are basically stealing and robbing the NRA blind as opposed to what is being perceived as kind of a brazen political move, namely with three months to go before the election, the, this lady is trying to cripple a major right-wing political group by trying to dissolve it. Does that sound fair? Well, the NRA is uh, not just a you know, right-wing political group, the NRA claims to be a charity. And in New York, charities have certain responsibilities and rules they have to follow uh, about disclosure of information about how much people are paid and why and when and what they have to do with the money they have and hopefully put it towards some sort of charitable end. And she has pointed out uh, in this investigation that that she's going to dissolve the NRA because Wayne LaPierre and three other uh, guys, John Frazier, Woody Phillips, and Joshua Powell, all uh, abused their leadership position, lied in disclosures to New York, right. uh, the state of New York, and diverted money uh, where it shouldn't have gone uh, away from the NRA's quote-unquote charitable mi- uh, mission uh, and just to into their own pockets to, to benefit themselves. It's funny themselves. that she calls uh, the NRA as a group that has a charitable mission when she two years ago called it a terrorist organization. Well, it's the NRA that's claiming they have a charitable mission. And no, I think she's characterizing need, right. it that as so, well in her filing. So this is... Uh, this is an action taken against the corporation. And this is kind of a part of the, the legal fiction that America has that corporations are people, right? This is the tied in with the Citizens United thing. If corporations are people, you have to dissolve them when they do wrong. If you have, uh, you know, John Smith, uh, who is uh, running a, a fraudulent charity, and uh, let's just uh, let's let's just pick a, a better name. J- John Smith is too generic. Let's let's pick a, a totally blank. All the John Smiths out there. Bert Terwilliger. Uh, let's pick a let's say a, 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 I don't know. A Donald Trump runs a fake Ooh, charity. Uh, seen that and, coming. And uh, and and Donald Trump diverts that charity's money mm-hmm. uh, to himself and his friends. Uh, you don't just go after Donald Trump, but they are. They're saying Wayne Lapierre and Woody Phillips and Joshua Powell and whatever the other guy, uh, the lawyer, uh, Frazier, uh, all of them, the, the AG's saying that they won't be able to hold any sort of leader posi- leadership position in a New York-based charity for who knows how long a, a, a time period, maybe a really long time, maybe forever. So they are going after these people. And that's, you know, the goal is to stop this self-dealing happening. But you also go after the corporation or the LLC or the charity or whatever itself for having done fraud. Because if you don't, if you just get rid of one person at the top, they're just going to keep doing the same thing with somebody else. And so that's the theory is that the AG's 
AGs in the states do have the power to dissolve corporations if those corporations are found to be kind of like fraud. The, kind of like the mafia. You know, it doesn't matter if you, you get Al Capone. He'll right. just be replaced by other Al right. Capone. So you just have to go shut down the mafia, The right? organization. Exactly. Yeah, the ex- exactly. And that's how she perceives the NRA as well, not, just like the mafia. Well, okay. I mean, they are both terrorist organizations, so I can see why so she, she says, think that. But the fact of the matter is, I think she's leading with her chin here because and the Wall Street Journal had an editorial the other day saying, you have to smile at her audacity. The suit claims to speak for millions of donors. It alleges were cheated by the NRA's self-dealing executives. But how does dissolving the nonprofit deliver relief or justice to gun rights donors or their cause? I mean, she is trying to neuter the NRA going into an election cycle, and so she has that kind of transparent motive. When you talk to legal experts, and I'm certainly no expert on the dissolution of corporations or charitable organizations in New York State, but when you talk to them and you read their quotes in the papers, it's a kind of a stretch for her to try to actually dissolve it, as opposed to just say, Pete LaPierre and his pals are really bad guys, let's go after them. I wonder, Connor, if she might be flirting with disaster to the point where she might elect Donald Trump by galvanizing national support for gun rights and the NRA, it, it, because when you try to destroy it on this pretense that the leader is cheating, isn't that going to really motivate everybody who's interested in gun rights and a lot of people? I mean, gun sales are through the roof during pandemic. It, isn't she risking the possibility that there'll be a big backlash? I think be even stronger support. I think for the anything NRA? you do uh, to oppose the interests of the NRA—that uh, is, to dissolve it person, it specifically—that is personally because it's corporate personhood—is uh, going to galvanize some of its supporters who see that they are themselves under attack. But this is, of course, not an attack against the donors of the NRA who can turn around and give their money to any of the other thousands of gun right organi- gun rights organizations, any one of which— Name 17. Any one of which might rise to prominence and fill the vacuum that will be left by the absence of the NRA, and they'll be able to start their own stupid, pointless TV stations and call them NGA-TV, and they'll put Don Bongino on there until his show fails again, and they'll get to do all the same stuff that they were doing before— they just won't be headed by Wayne LaPierre and these other crooks. Now, they probably will be headed by other crooks, but that's just my personal opinion. Look, this is not an attack on gun rights or gun owners in the U.S., and they shouldn't think of it that way because it's simply an attack on one charity that was committing illegal acts and fraud. It really, I I despise how the narrative for any time anyone does anything that would oppose the rights of uh, uh, oppose the interests of the political right, that the reaction in newspapers and editorials is, oh, you're driving people towards Trump. You see it on the Washington Post page. You even see it on the New York Times editorial page. You're just going to drive people to the arms of Trump. You know what? Every time the federal secret police on the streets of Portland beat up people who are saying, I'm anti-fascist, I'm protesting for a better world, and then they get tear gassed and punched, nobody says, oh, no, you're going to drive them towards communism. No, we're not worried about that because people don't actually work like that. People aren't actually pushed in ridiculous extremist uh, uh, directions by, you know, being— Well, isn't it, isn't it kind of a, a, an obvious political and psychological phenomenon that if, for example, an abortion, you have a high-profile abortion case, and the Supreme Court comes out squarely in favor of abortion— 
Isn't that going to energize uh, pro-life folks and make it more likely that come the fall they're going to be receptive to the to the argument that doggone it, you got to turn out, you got to vote for Trump or whatever the Republican is? Because you remember three months ago the Smith versus Jones case. Remember how horrible that was? You, it was devastating to the pro-life movement. So what is, isn't that what psychological? Isn't that natural? I, I hear you, and I hear that all the time. But what psychological? Uh, sort of uh, truism do we are we pointing to to say that it energizes the opposing base more than it energizes the people who say look you uh, oh, I think there's complacency the when you win uh, I, for example let's take the abortion situation uh, several months ago uh, there was a case before the U.S. Supreme Court mm-hmm. about I believe it was the, the state of te- uh, Texas had a law that was struck down and then the current law was in Louisiana right so the law in Louisiana says you may not have an abortion Unless your doctor is uh, at a credential, has admitting, hospital, pri- admitting privileges, admitting privileges in nearby really hospitals. fancy, high quality hospital, yeah. and the result, the net effect of it was one hospital in all of Louisiana, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. could uh, conduct uh, provide abortions exactly, and so. I think that the natural psychological reaction to that decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that, no, we're striking down this Louisiana law, is to energize and galvanize the pro-life folks, whereas the the pro-choice people, I don't think it's going to cause them, oh, my goodness, we've got to vote in November to get the same kind of wonderful decisions out of the Chief Justice Roberts uh, strong. There might be a stronger effect on the negative side. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist who'd say, well, you know, you you feel more motivated to act when you're under attack than when uh, your power is solidified. But it, we got to see that the right wants it both ways. The right wants to say that they're both energized by losing, and then they also want to say, well, people, we got to get out. We're all energized, aren't we? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy when they say, we're, aren't we energized by Mitch McConnell winning and putting in hundreds of conservative judges and, you know, Trump building the border wall? Isn't that invigorating his base that he's actually fulfilling a campaign promise by building three miles of wall and then claiming that there's a wall in the border? They want to have it both ways where they say they're invigorated and their base is going to come out powerfully on both sides. And it really is just a self-fulfilling prophecy move. This idea that you just tell people that they're energized, they'll get energized. Well, we're not going to be able to resolve this. I think we're going to have to reach out to Dr. Joyce Brothers Good idea. and have her a real next week, and she can answer the question. I need an for armchair us. for my armchair psychology. <laughs> this is Too Many Lawyers. Stick with us. We're back. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So we've resolved the issue about yeah, the National mm-hmm. Rifle Association. And, it's a good uh, thing. And whether or not there should be presidential <laughs> debates uh, this fall. Let's get to topic number three, which is, this is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb. Here we go. (laughs) On uh, Nagasaki. Yeah, so it's a a tough one. I've seen editorials uh, on the op-ed pages recently, some saying, doggone it, Uh, here's the historical evidence. It's been overlooked by a lot of people, but we didn't have to drop those two bombs. Japan would have surrendered. I've seen exact opposite uh, conclusions from people who really respected historians saying, absolutely. The Japanese were digging in. They had all sorts of serious plans to have men, women, and children defend the homeland, which some people said could have resulted in the loss of 500,000 to a million uh, American lives in the invasion. And so, you know, this is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the Nagasaki bomb. And the question people are addressing is, you know, should we have dropped the bomb? I think, Tanner, this is, is an example of people using current attitudes to judge history. I think the people who are writing the op-ed pieces 
are sort of channeling their their own personal feelings uh, about military uh, things. I, I don't really think they're able to climb into Harry Truman's head and, and really do a fair analysis of his decision. I mean, he says he never lost sleep over this. Now, I've read the Chris Wallace, the Fox News guy's uh, mag- uh, book that just came out this year, Countdown 1945, which obviously was timed for the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb. And he walks through Truman's life from the moment he got the word, okay, FDR's dead, you're president, to the dropping of the bombs in August 1945. And there was some agonizing because he, he was absorbing all this. He didn't know about the project before FDR died. Uh, but there is the famous quote that he really didn't lose sleep because I think at the end of the day he was convinced by his advisors that we would have to invade the mainland. Uh, it, it's hard to question the development of the bomb or the use of the bomb and then the development of the hydrogen bomb. Do you think it's really fair to, to question those 1940s era decisions by today's desire to, to somehow curb nuclear proliferation or somehow achieve disarmament? You're right that there is a very different perspective nowadays, having been through the Cold War and the world not exploding, and us seeing how mutually assured destruction worked with a tenuous uh, uh, fear from uh, from all parties involved. It is amazing when you think of all the countries with all the wacko guys with yeah. their fingers on nuclear buttons, not just North Korea, but... Hey, hey, it's 2020. Wacko yeah. guys and gals. But I mean, 75 years, Connor, not a single nuclear bomb has been detonated in combat since then. That's a pretty remarkable statistic. Yeah. I mean, the, it, you're absolutely right. The the mechanisms that we put into place, not just the not just the concept of mutual assured destruction, but all the international organizations that bring people uh, to the table to talk to each other, seem to have uh, have been effective. The the question uh, really comes down to. Um, well, it comes down to a lot of factors, but the main factors in people's minds are. Were, was some overwhelming show of force in the form of a nuclear uh, detonation uh, necessary to change uh, Japan's mind, or were there other non-nuclear options, uh, or not this specific nuclear option that right. would have changed uh, Japan's mind and made them uh, 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 surrender, or um, did we really do it, if you go another level deeper, did we really do it for a, a number of other reasons? And as much as we might read history books by people who were in the room, we can't really know what was in everybody's head, and we can't really know how much of this is looking backwards with rose-colored glasses versus people not wanting to admit that they wanted to drop the bomb as a show of force because they knew the Cold War was coming and that Russia was soon to be our mortal enemy. And frightening Russia was right. as important as getting Japan to surrender. Now, well, maybe that's one way to do it. Other people have said that you could simply have blockaded and starved uh, Japan out. Now, blockading and starvation are inherently also bad for civilians, um, in, but not quite in the same way as dropping multiple nuclear bombs on civilian targets, because that's the other tactical choice that we had. We could have detonated uh, a nuclear bomb in the ocean off the coast of Japan, uh, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 miles away, and mm-hmm. said, sent a letter to the emperor and said, hey, by the way, the next one's going to be on Nagasaki if you don't surrender. Right, we didn't perfectly do that. Perfectly legitimate debate could go on Absolutely. to all those questions you raise. I think those are tactical issues. So I think the bigger picture strategic issue, I mean, goes back to the, the genie being out of the bottle. In 1939, Einstein uh, wrote a letter, Albert Einstein, to FDR saying, eh, Mr. President, I uh, got this idea and I really think it's important. And of course, the irony is, if the monster Adolf Hitler 
hadn't gotten rid of the Jewish scientists, right. he would have had all the Jewish scientists who Einstein were able included, to help. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Einstein is now on the side of the good guys. He later said he regretted sending the letter. And it's interesting because a lot of nuclear scientists who helped with the Manhattan Project, as it was being finalized and the bombs were about to drop, they actually signed a big petition, many, many of them, saying, don't do it. And then four years later, five years later, in about 1950, when Truman was presented by his advisors with the question, okay, do we green light the hydrogen bomb, which is like a thousand times bigger sure. than the atomic bomb? Right. There were scientists who actually said, well, we can do it, but we shouldn't do it because, my gosh, what does this mean for humanity and so on? Even though when Truman turned to his advisors and said, tell me, boys, um, chances are good Russia will get—they've already stolen our atomic secrets. Chances are good Russia will have this H-bomb pretty soon. If we don't develop it, they'll have it. And the answer came back, yeah, Mr. President, realistically, they will. And, of course, they were right. A matter of months, I think, after we developed the H-bomb, they had it, too. The genie was out. How could you turn into a sort of pacifist, unilateral disarmament person? Oh, my God, it, the idea of, of possessing and even possibly using nuclear weapons when you've got you know, barbarians at the gate, guys who were fully prepared to kill us. I mean, wouldn't we be speaking Russian right now if Truman had said, doggone it, I feel bad about the H-bomb. I haven't been able to sleep since I dropped the atomic bomb. You know, let Russia do what they're We're not going to do it. I mean, I am, I am very sympathetic to the idea of uh, mutually assured destruction being an important deterrent effect that stopped the Cold War from turning into a world-destroying hot war, uh, as it might well have done. I am much less sympathetic to the idea that we had to use those bombs on civilian targets in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is the you know the anniversary of right. the thing that we're discussing here. Yeah, I, I get it. After after the war, uh, maybe you've got to develop the H-bomb. Maybe you could just make a bunch more A-bombs because, well, I mean, if you just make a thousand A-bombs, that's one H-bomb. Who cares uh, how big your bombs are, really, if it all ends the world regardless? But the idea of whether we bomb civilian targets, cities full of everybody, just men, women, and children, everybody, not soldiers, not factories, just civilians, as a show of force to say, Japan, you have no choice. You must surrender immediately. And then they did surrender immediately when we— we didn't, we don't have all the, the evidence because we weren't there. We weren't in the room. We don't know what Harry Truman was really thinking. We only know what he and his advisors have re written in their, you know, widely read uh, biographies and books about the time. But did, was Japan really going to fight to the last man? Were they not going to surrender? Or were they, did they see the writing on the wall because Russia had invaded and successfully on the ground taken over all of their holdings in Manchuria and were pushing them backwards towards the ocean, meaning they'd all have to flee back onto the island, at which point they can see the war is over in Europe and they can see that they're completely outmanned and surrounded and that they're going to have to give up. Is it really just sort of cultural uh, insensitivity and racism to say that, that Japanese people are just like samurai and they'll fight to the last man and well, they'll never surrender quite, or is that real is that actually the case i don't think it's the case it's quite a debate you describe and the evidence of the, the profundity of the debate is it we're exactly still having 75 yeah. years yeah, we're later having. we're still talking about it final point on it and uh, this is sort of a personal family issue that you, you and i've talked about uh your sister uh, claire when she this was family a has a lot of personal family issues there you go uh, when claire was at cal she uh, wrote a paper 
and the topic was the risk that the atmosphere would ignite. Oh, that's a, that was a good. I, I don't know if it was her thesis or just maybe just one of her final papers. Yeah. She's a history major, but she she wrote about it. Yeah, it was a fascinating of, read. Some people thought that when you first <laughs> tested the very first atomic bomb in yeah. 1945, there was a risk that it would ignite the atmosphere, instantly killing all forms of life, life. on Well, Earth. probably some, some ocean life would be okay. You know, under the ocean. Maybe. Like the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So Enrico Fermi, one of the famed scientists of the 20th century, and his pals literally were making friendly wagers just before the test. And <laughs> What's he the was point be- of a wager? He was betting, yeah, I think this might happen. And I've always tried to find out. I, I tried to cr- find out from Claire. Well, did the really, really smart scientists think there was a 1% chance or a point tenth or a hundredth? Or a thousand oh, oh, you know, how lucky do you feel, punk? punk? Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, for fourth and final topic today is TikTok. Um, Trump and WeChat. Is, Trump is doing a TikTok takeover and WeChat, <laughs> and Connor knows a lot more about this than I do, but I guess the question is, is this TikTok move by Trump a hostile takeover yeah. or a cool anti-espionage move? It's a tough call. I mean, it's not that tough a call because there are a lot of cybersecurity experts out there Uh, in the U.S. even, um, who have weighed in on this and said, basically, these Chinese companies, uh, specifically called ByteDance, which uh, owns TikTok, um, and Tencent, which owns WeChat, their data collection practices are pretty par for the course, pretty standard in the industry. So they're not a a front for espionage. Well, that's, that's the thing. They don't collect more information on users than American or European or, or, or African or whatever other non Chinese companies. It's just that the Chinese Communist Party has these powerful security laws that allow the CCP to hijack Chinese companies' info and use that info potentially for whatever purposes they want, meaning specifically, you know, frighteningly enough, espionage. Now, do American and European uh, governments not harvest uh, their citizens' data in these, you know, the FISA court debacle and and PRISM and every other post-9-11 Patriot Act-style surveillance state thing that the U.S. and Europeans do? Yeah, we all do the same thing, too. But hopefully uh, we're, you know, nicer to our own citizens, and so I'm I'm less worried about Microsoft and Facebook having backdoors that the government uh, uses uh, against its own citizens as opposed to what the Chinese government might do to American citizens, because they're not our citizens, right? So that's the big debate. Sorry, I'm a little ahead of myself. I didn't frame the, uh, the issue. Right now, we're about 24 hours out from President Trump signing an executive order to, in fact, uh, basically identical, one for ByteDance and one for Tencent, saying American citizens and companies uh, uh, abroad that are American in some connected way uh, can't engage in financial transactions with these two big companies, ByteDance and Tencent, meaning that the basically the crown jewels of those companies are TikTok for ByteDance and WeChat uh, for Tencent. Now, WeChat in China is like Facebook, Amazon, uh, not quite Google, but all the Grubhub, Postmates, food delivery, like your payments, the way you use Samsung Pay to pay at the grocery store for 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 vegetables, it's everything rolled into one. It's a WeChat is a started as a messaging app, but it became it rolled up tons of other mini apps into it. So now Chinese people they talk to their relatives abroad and in China on WeChat. They pay their utility bills. They pay their rent if they've got rent. They pay uh, for groceries with this thing. 
they get their news through this thing. It's basically a Facebook social media feed as well. It's everything for, for Chinese people and mostly uh, for uh, Chinese folks living abroad. Explain this TikTok to me. Is it like cyber karaoke? Is that what TikTok it boils down is basic? To? Wow, that's that's, that's pretty what much the it. Hell? Why does it? anybody care about this? Why are we talking about cyber karaoke? <laughs> well, social media is a massively powerful force. I I I, I would love. Don't the to, Chinese people have better things to do? Like plot to take us over? Well, TikTok is is actually uh, a U.S. based thing that oh. got bought by uh, by uh, ByteDance, and ByteDance has a, a Chinese name for their version of TikTok that they use in uh, that they let people use in China itself. Um, and this is one of the big controversies, actually. That yes, this this dumb karaoke app that uh, that eleven year olds use. Uh, this is they're in talks. Ten sorry, ByteDance is in talks with Microsoft to sell its you know, U.S.-based business in TikTok. And in the midst of these talks with Microsoft, um, Trump goes out and says, I don't think they should be allowed to operate as a social media site at all, period. And then over the last 72 hours, a bunch of people, including Lindsey Graham, conservatives who have Trump's ear, went to him and said, whoa, 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 buddy, uh, you know that whole they're not allowed to operate thing at all? What if we changed the deal and we said they're not allowed to operate because they're owned by the Chinese Communist Party uh, controlled corporations and therefore you've got to sell because Microsoft is in talks to sell already. And this would put a big thumb on the scale so that Microsoft could get a sweet deal out of this uh, TikTok purchase. And that's the sort of one of the more frightening things is the idea that we would leverage our... Now, not that this hasn't happened in the past, of course, in American history, but the idea that the American political system is leveraging its political power on the international stage to help a private corporation secure a deal. That happens all the time. But we don't like it. Let's get back to the nature of TikTok. How can there be any worry about S? Espionage. If if you have eleven year old children, what what are they singing? Uh, Uncle Sam's MX missile veers three degrees to the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what they're doing? You know, that's how a, can you convey? That's a really that's a really good point. Actually, the the uh, a really good way to think about it. Um, so this is an outright ban on the operation of an app at all with American citizens. But many. Uh, apps that are owned by foreign companies that collect data about the user are restricted or banned only for the U.S. military members to use. So, like, if you're in the Marines, you can't use a fitness app that measures your heart rate or whatever else that is based in China because that app also tracks your location. So if too many people in the military, in the Marines or the Navy SEALs or whatever else— Use this app, then the Chinese government, by hack, you know, backdooring into uh, this corporation that they secretly control, might find out where physically too many U.S. military members are on the planet. That is a real concern that cybersecurity experts have alerted the U.S. government to, and the U.S. government said you can't use these certain apps if you're in the military. But does it matter if companies around the world know where people doing karaoke are physically located, or what their faces look like? or their ages, or their genders, or their race, or their whatever else information you collect through this app. I mean, that's, these apps, even though they're just, you know, youthful karaoke machines, they're still collecting data about people. 
So then the question is whether Donald Trump really has the power per an executive order to do what he's trying to do. Kind of like Obama saying, uh, please, Congress, pass this immigration reform. You have to do or you won't do it. I have a pen and a cell phone and I'm going to do it. And right. a lot of the courts upheld him. Yeah, this is a, a, a very real uh, question of, of how much power uh, presidents have uh, to, you know, flex when Congress won't act. This has come up uh, not just in this TikTok uh, area and, and WeChat area. Uh, TikTok is the, sort of the more uh, useful on the state side thing, but WeChat is actually a much bigger deal because it's used by so many, used by like 19 million people in the U.S. Um, and to do a bunch of you know important stuff like talk to their families back in China, much more important than you know karaoke. Uh, but Trump has also run uh, into this issue of what can he do with executive orders uh, in the context of COVID relief, right? In the last 72 hours, Trump signed an executive order saying that he was uh, going to uh, unilaterally, because Congress won't act, they're stuck on extending the $600 a week additional unemployment uh, assistance. Mm -hmm. He said, well, I'm, Congress won't act, so I'm going to act. I'm going to send out uh, $400 a week. Uh, $400, uh, uh, yeah, $400 a week and for uh, unemployment assistance on top of our normal horrifically low unemployment assistance that's obviously inadequate. And that $400, says Trump, not even further and more complica uh, complicated, is that that $400 is going to be 75% from the federal government and 25% from the states. So your state has to match 25% of the federal grant, meaning if this, your state can't come up with $100 per week per person who's filing for unemployment, which is a lot of people right now, then the, those people living in that state don't get the federal money of $300. Mm -hmm. So we have multiple layers of what the heck can the president do this? Can the president, without congressional approval, just declare that he's going to spend taxpayer money in a certain way or and on top of that, can he force the states to spend money? And this is the subject of, of hundreds of years, not, not just decades, but hundreds of years of Supreme Court jurisprudence of situations where can the president compel state action and can the president act when Congress uh, is not acting but, but the president thinks they should. And there are many you know, conflicts. Trump, this isn't even the first time in Trump's term that he's run into it. The border wall was another issue where he said they won't give me money to build the border wall, so I'm just going to take money from the uh, national security budget and other areas of the budget, and I'm going to reallocate it towards building my border wall that's going to cost billions and billions of dollars, or trillions, actually. And everybody said, you can't do that. And Congress actually largely stopped him from doing that because they passed their own law, which this means that this is a, an effective way for Trump to force Congress to do something sometimes, because if he just does it, they have to overrule him, which can kind of bring everybody together. The Democrats, the Republicans, they all kind of agree. Trump shouldn't be doing our job. We want to be doing our job. Now, in this specific case, the Republicans are so set on this unemployment insurance basically running out in a pandemic in an election year, please, someone explain to me why they think this is a good idea politically or practically, but they're doing it, that they might just be willing to— Well, some of them have a very serious and economically uh, defensible position that if, when you raise the money up to a certain level, there is such a disincentive to return to work that you're really going to cause the economy to crater even more. Studies have, 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 have preliminarily been done showing that it doesn't disincentivize people trying to get a job because people have, you know, 
the ability to think about the future and think more than six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks in the future. And they know they need a job for the rest of their lives. They can't just sit back on and collect their unemployment. And secondly, oh no, the worst happens. We pay people to stay at home and not spread the pandemic, and maybe we'll solve the pandemic problem. So the tragedy of tragedies is that COVID is cured. Oh, no. Yeah, maybe we should be paying people to stay home like we should have been doing for months and months. Well, just as we're going to get Joyce Brothers on the psychological issue, I yeah. think we're going to get Milton Friedman to help you uh, out on that economic sure. issue. Because like he has a lot And Dr. Ruth. We need a doctor, too. Input. No, I have no interest in speaking to Dr. Ruth. <laughs> Uh, by the way, you mentioned the border wall. Um, a plug here for Randy Rainbow's uh, one of his newest songs, "Border Lies." Oh, so check good. out Randy Rainbow. Love him on YouTube. He's so good. Well, Connor, uh, we've run out of time, but we've resolved. Such, let me recap what we've resolved: is the presidential debates good? Uh, dissolving National Rifle Association bad? What, what, uh, what? Dropping atomic bomb uh, necessary evil? What, what, what? And TikTok. Dopey. That we agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the only thing you and I agree. As Connor on, said, we agree. <laughs> On that, period. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers.